let's 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 start. Connie, we, um, Chuck and Lori are away. Um, Mike's away. Somebody else is away too. So keep them in prayers, please. Karen, did you? Is what? He's doing much better. Oh, good. How good? How good? I'm sorry, Bob. What was? What's his name? David. 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 Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, for your presence during the day, um, for um, the gift of yourself in Mass for anybody who went today. I want to offer a special thanksgiving to you, Mary. Um, I hope all of you got my picture of her, the statue, which I really love. Um, Mary, what to say, for goodness sake? We offer prayers constantly, and I found myself realizing, um, to my shame, how much some of us can take you for granted. We turn to you for prayers all the time. You are a friend, my goodness. That we would turn to you that much. Um, I ask pardon, Mary, for any ways in which I've taken you for granted, um, to constantly appeal to you for prayers and um, <laughs> how much any of us, myself, foist on us our weaknesses and sins and going to you as much as we do. Um, forgive us, please. Um, be strengthened in the fact that we do turn to you, um, how good you are. Um, you know, recently from the statue that we had close to our bed, how taken I am by that image of you holding your hand up to Christ so quiet, so quiet, so understated, and it's hard for me to believe that you were teaching him anything but the law. Um, he must have sat, been in your lap, hearing you sing psalms, um, telling stories of biblical figures in the Old Testament. There was no New Testament then. It, it was about to be created. You were the one that helped bring it into being, the New Testament. You had him on your lap, um, you would have been singing psalms, and as he grew, six months, a year, three years, five years, ten, thirteen, when you had to go to the temple and recover him, and were probably as stern as you were ever in your life when you said, why have you done this to us? For all the years that you offered to him in teaching, and your example to all of us who love teaching, um, uh, everybody here, they wouldn't be here. Um, we offer profound, profound, deeply profound thanksgiving to you. For the example that you are in the picture you give us of sitting next to your son, if more mothers would take that seriously today, more seriously, and fathers, um, how much better our learning would be. Pray for us, please, all of us. Um, teachers are not doing what they should today, lots of them. Pray for us, please, that um, teachers spring up among us um, to bring the law, the Father's law, what you taught your son, 
that he loved and the love that you would learn from him as he got older um, and has passed that love on to us. Pray for us, please. And we offer a special thanksgiving for Bob's brother for his good recovery. Um, for those who are away, Chuck and Lori on their trip, um, be with them. Um, I haven't heard from Melody in a while, which, which bothers me. I hope I'm not misstating here that she carries her family and so I'm going to offer this freely on my own. <laughs> she can scold me later. Um, be with her and her family, um, all those who are not present um, virtually tonight. Um, how grateful we are that we are doing this work together. Help us to do a better job of taking our faith to the world. We have to understand the disorders of our time if we're to answer them. So let everybody be strengthened in this. The, um, Hawthorne is dealing absolutely directly with this. Help us to take what we're learning and bring it to our world. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, I just want to stay with Rednati, um, as I said, for a while. It means we're going to be reading dark poems. That's, that's okay. Um, remember, Rednati was Jewish, um, born into a Jewish family. Um, at a time when the Germans occupied Hungary. Um, and um, he grew up, I think, with the sensitivity of so many Jewish people. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that American, those who are Jewish and American carry the sensitivity because, um, what's his name, Billy Crystal, once, who's Jewish, said that the mother load of the Jewish culture in America was in Hollywood. He meant that, that Hollywood the, has a strong Jewish influence. It's, it, it's prominent. Um, I ask, just on a quick aside, pray for all those of religious faiths who are so tempted by our American culture. Um, he was Jewish and he had the sensitivity of um, somebody in a European country um, who lived with anti-Semitism surrounding him. Um, it was particularly strong in Europe, in Hungary, in Russia, as you know. Um, he, he was born at a time when the Germans occupied Russia and they rounded up all the Jews to take them to Auschwitz. You all know that. When he was, um, when he was born, um, he he, re he learned shortly after he was born that his brother died stillborn, so he lost his brother to death, and that his mother died in giving birth. So he, he grew up identifying, as I said last week, identifying himself with Cain. That's something he carried with him. He's, he felt a guilt like sometimes veterans do when they're returning and asking, why am I spared? Why did all my friends die? Why am I here? Americans so take, we take our culture so for granted, so for granted. He didn't, and he had the, um, an acute sensitivity and it expressed itself in poetry. So he wrote poetry most of his life. He died young. 
Um, during a forced march when he was um, sent into the labor camps, the mining um, camps, to mine for copper because it was needed for Hitler's um, military armaments. Um, he was taken from there on a forced march down the way to Auschwitz and you know that groups of them would fall out from starvation and weakness and die. And he did too. The guy next to him was shot in the head because he couldn't get up to walk. And during all of that, he continued to write poetry. I mean, in some sense, it sort of reinforces what I've been putting before you for a couple of years now, how important the poet is and how committed he is. It's a special calling, um, particularly for those who take it seriously. So he continued to write poetry, and the, the, line, the passages that I'll read for the next few weeks are from collections of poems that were found on his body when it, um, when it was exhumed, when they uncovered the gravesite where they buried you know, these groups of um, Hungarians. I think his wife actually um, was involved in that uncovering and found her husband's body and went to the clothes and found this packet of poems. And they were called, I don't know the Hungarian name, you've got it on the sheet of paper, um, Razglegnikas, I'm not sure. But the word means postcards. So he wrote these poems knowing that they would be sent because he would be dead. So we can, we can give them another name, we can say postcards from the dead. They have that meaning, okay? They're sent from the next life. Eliot used that word, remember, I've, I've read the passage, we'll read it again shortly. Um, tongues of fire from the past, tongues of fire. That this is the dead speaking to us, you know, facing the horrors that as Catholics we have been asked to carry with us in our world, however disturbing they are. So these are called postcards, okay? I'll read from the first one, postcard one, Red Naughty. Rolling from Bulgaria, the brutal cannonade slams at the ranges to hesitate and fade. Men and beasts and carts and thoughts are jammed into one. Neighing, the road rears up. The man's sky will run. And you're the only constant in the changing and the mess. You shine on eternal beneath my consciousness. Mute as an angel, wondering at the catastrophe. Or the beetle, or burial, from his hole in a rotting tree. He's so good. He's not crying or whining or feeling sorry or accusing. He's describing an experience as if, I mean, the Catholic is asked to do this, as if he were standing outside of it, offering himself as an instrument to make clear this horror. So I hope that's clear. Um, when we die, nature's going to go on. Flowers next to us are not going to wilt, right? Nature's going to stop. The moon will come up. The sun will come up. Things are not going to stop because we die. Nature's going to go on. Poets have written about that forever. They, they call it the indifference of nature. He's just describing a scene in the context of his imminent death. So he's not making his um, self the issue of things. He's standing, presenting the world objectively, 
but from a perspective that makes us clear there's a horror taking place. He's not making it about himself, he's just presenting it. Is that clear? That's part of the beauty. It's one of the reasons I encourage you to get this collection because it's so easy to read. It's just, it's, I mean, you read this, it's very easy. There's nothing hard about it. But you become aware that something more is going on, but his attention is what's right in front of me. It would be like as if suddenly there was an earthquake and all of us were gobbled up, and our last perceptions were of each other sitting here and studying and talking together, <laughs> whatever's going on. So the beauty of his poetry is that it's in a colloquial language, it's very familiar, it's not difficult, but it's, it's expressing um, his experiences on the verge of modernity. What Hitler did was elevate the importance of machinery, power. I hope that's clear. He elevated, he wanted armaments because he believed with all this machinery he could defeat any nation. So he exalts machinery, the power of the human bomb, the airplane, ships, machines. If you've watched um, Tolkien's The Fellowship of the um, Rings, you know that they, they, those, the bad guy, I can't remember his name, creates all these things, you know, to wreck havoc. And some of them are these, I don't know, those built-up things and machines and human, these parodies of humans to go to war. They're not human. They're they're like Frankenstein figures. The modern world is on the edge of men using their intelligence to create things to replace human beings or have power over them. That's the, that's the threshold from which he writes. He's, he's at the beginning, just as Hawthorne and uh, Melville are, okay? Sherwood Mary, I want to thank you again for the, <laughs> if you remember when Odysseus sat down to tell his story, I'm not Odysseus and it's a, a bad comparison, but when, when Odysseus sat down to tell his story, he was drinking wine the whole time, so. Okay, um, here's my opening question for everybody. It's a serious opening question. Serious open question because it goes to the heart of Scarlet Letter. With Scarlet. Scarlet Letter is about a letter. So whatever else it means, it has to do with reading, right? I hope that's clear. Scarlet Letter. It's about a letter. It doesn't say Pride and Prejudice. It doesn't say High Mountain. It doesn't say a whale. It says a letter. So it is um, principally about signs and how we read. That's at the heart of this book. Because Hawthorne's aware that Christianity has reached a crisis. The way it looks at the world, the way Christians read the world, are in crisis. 19th century, mid-19th century. Because they bring, Christians bring a, Christ, a religious worldview to bear on the way they read the world, how they interpret it. Just like the governors, Wilson, everybody. They don't want, they don't want to go to, I'm going to read that tonight. They don't want to go to natural philosophy. Their source of knowledge is scripture. That's all they're doing, they're reading scripture. So when the question of taking pearl away comes up, they say, don't bother with that stuff. What should guide us is scripture. We see that through the book. What this book is principally about is reading. How do we read signs, okay? 
So my opening question to everybody here is, what do we see, and this is so serious for me, what do we see when we look at another person? How do we read that person? I can't, that sounds so stupid, I can't be more serious. What, what do we see when we look at the person in front of us? Who do we see? The opening lines of Hamlet, you will remember. Somebody give them to me. What's the opening line of Hamlet? Who's there? We went through that, remember? Because the ghost has been haunting and the guards are, they're on guard. And you remember the one who's coming on is actually saying, divulge thyself, who are you? Wrong way, it means something. The other guard's not doing his job. The opening lines of Hamlet, who's there? Who's the king? Yeah, everybody's adoring this king. He's just killed his brother and taken over the throne. They all respect him. Hawthorne, short um, scarlet letter, it's about a minister. Everybody in that community looks at him as a saint. He is a, he is a good, good man, and genuinely good. He does everything he can to be holy. He's a good man, but nobody sees that he's the father of, and everybody's condemning Hester and the child. Who's there? How well do we read the soul of another human being? Chillingworth is going to say, and that, um, the chapter we're going to get to, it's the chapter I want to focus on today. Chillingworth is going to work on Dimsdale on the assumption that if he can only get to the soul of this man, he will heal him. It's, I hope everybody hears that. We're on the verge of modernity. Therapists are going to sit down across a couch from somebody with the assumption that they can help heal that person of his spiritual infirmities. No grace. No God, no sacrament, but analysis can help us get to the heart of the problem and heal that person. Chillingworth is the prototype of the modern therapist. We'll be in that chapter where it says, I can't heal you unless I get to the heart of things. Is there something you want to confess to me? Yeah? Who's there? Who's there? One of the scriptural passages... Um, Get the beam out of your own eye, or no, sorry, yeah, get the beam out of your own eye. Um, is that right? Yeah, get the beam out of your own eye before you... The other splinter in the other? I've got, not got that right, but what he's saying is, and I love this, he's, he's not a sort of pre-say, don't, let's don't ever judge. That is not what Christ is saying. That Christ doesn't say that. He says, Take care of the beam in your own eye before you. So he's saying, he doesn't say don't judge. He's saying, be clear on your own faults and carry them with you in whatever you do with somebody else because otherwise you're just going to be misreading things. So the, one of the principal things of Scarlet Letter is reading. And what Hawthorne makes clear is that there was a habit, a tendency to read in a certain way in our founding generation that was cruel. That these, this group that was um, so committed to its religious beliefs um, were so committed that they risked everything to come to found a new life. That's how much courage, that's how much faith they had. But what we find when we get here and they have to start living together are problems. 
and we've already gone through them. Sola Fide, Sola Scripture, they don't, in some ways, they push against each other. Remember, as we said last week, that's what we saw with Han, Anne Hathaway and the community. She lives by faith alone. She doesn't hold herself to the doctrines that the community follows. She thinks they're following a covenant of works, that they're going back to the Catholic tradition, and they expel her, arrest her, imprison her, and finally expel her. And we know that um, not long after that, they're going to execute um, people at the witch trials. And the community said, it's not just sola fide, as it was for Anne Hathaway, it's sola scriptura. The evidence of your faith, the evidence that your faith is genuine, is your reading of scripture. Evidence of your faith is conformity to the rules of the community. So you've got a strong push for community on the one hand, and a strong push for an individual reading of scripture on the other. And I'm going to argue that that tension still exists in that forum today. Respectability, the adversarial class. Respectable people, the adversarial class who condemn them for their hypocrisies. That tension still defines the American character. So that's my question for today, okay? And um, I'll come back to it um, after we've gone through the book some. Quick review, okay? I want to do a quick review. If you go to the notes, you'll, you can just follow along, but... Um, you know that different people approach Scarlet Letter with different mindsets. I told you that um, one of the parishioners from St. Francis brought me an article from the Dallas Morning News. It was written by a Protestant minister who took the position that when she was in high school, she thought Scarlet Letter was about um, adultery. And now that she knew better, <laughs> now that she knew better, and she was older, she saw that it wasn't about adultery at all. She completely misunderstood it. It was about clergy abuse. <laughs> Sorry. Clergy abuse. Um, I was so upset that, that I wrote an article. That I, by the way, it's going to come out, I think, in Communio soon, the, the, that article that Communio has published, the Dallas Morning News refused. But some people um, today, you know that when they read things, they will read them in light of modern ideologies. That woman did, the minister. She thought it was about clergy abuse. It is not. A, I mean, it couldn't be farther away from clergy abuse. There's as much good reason for thinking Hester seduced him. We don't know. We just don't know. What we know is that she loves him in some way, and he loves her, or they did, and they're suffering, both of them equally, from that Whatever happened one night, or we don't know. We don't know. We're in the dark. But they carry the guilt, the shame, um, because in having sexual intercourse together, they transgressed the laws of the community and and marital vows. Um, there are lots of women feminists who write on um, on Scarlet Letter and get worked up about it. Because it um, it um, it's it seems to attract um, feminist criticism, and you can understand why because it's principally about a, a woman, and it's and in a way that's unheard of. I the only other novel that I can think of the Jane Austen writes about feminine heroines, but none of them ever deal with the depth of sin that um, Hawthorne does. You know that Jane Austen is far more in a social world, in a world of proprieties. 
Um, Moll Flanders is another heroine. But um, we don't find a woman who has the, who fascinates a reader as much as she does. When, when you read this book, you get drawn into the spiritual suffering of a woman who's a mother carrying a child when she has to bear the rejection of everybody in the world around her. I can't, I can't think of a writer, not, the, not, from, not from Defoe or you know, Austin or up, not Dostoevsky, I, I can't think of a modern, not Faulkner. So it's a compelling, compelling work. It, um, it deals with a feminine sensibility, not a man, um, or really indirectly Dimsdale, and all that goes on with her. I, I, the, the irony for me when I read this criticism is that it could not be less feminist. It's, it's not a work that endorses feminist principles. The feminist principles take the position that women have been enslaved and they should be liberated, but the whole push is um, um, towards politics and political power. If it's going to happen, it's got to happen through politics and a changed understanding of the nature of women. Um, and so many feminists have made it clear that one of the things that they hate about being women are their bodies. What's at the issue here is that fem Hester can't escape her body. She's just given birth to a child. It's of her body. But so many modern feminists like to say, that's not my body. Or I can do with it whatever I want. Or I can do with whatever, ch whatever comes out of me what I want. So in one sense, Scarlet Letter could, could not be more anti-feminist, I think, than it is. The, 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 if we're going to call it power, I think influence may be the better word. If we're going to talk about the influence that Hester has, and it's far greater in some ways than uh, Dimsdale's. It comes from her weakness, from the fact that she's in sin and everybody sees her that way. She has a sense of things that other people don't. And that's where we left off last week, and I want to pick up there. What Hawthorne makes clear is people who don't carry a sense of sin in themselves are too quick to make judgments of other people. They think they're better instinctively. If you go around in the world thinking you're better or you don't have sins, you're going to look down at everybody else when they have faults. You're going to judge them. You're going to criticize them. You're going to say you'll divorce them. Um, so if there's and, and Hawthorne is so clear in this. He describes Hester early on in that Hester and her needles chapter. He said, it was, like, it was as if she had a new birth. And I'm, I'm going to come to this in a minute. Her awareness of her own sins. This is such a paradox. Nobody, I hope I'm not just speaking for myself. Nobody likes sins. I do not like my sins a lot. I go to confession regularly. I do not like my sins. Um, we all want to get rid of them, I think. Christ asks us to be perfect. Um, but Hawthorne is making clear, along with Melville, that something is given to us in sins, that we realize how much we need God. It's like an awakening, and it situates us, situates us differently with respect to people. Because we no longer can separate ourselves from them thinking we're better, we learn to see the world in a new way. Okay? I'm gonna, Dante was Catholic. Lots of people are going to claim Shakespeare's a Protestant. I just don't believe it. Shakespeare's Catholic. 
They are the two people who've seen into the depths of the human soul more than anybody else. And I don't believe they could have done that if they weren't Catholic, if they didn't have a sense of sin. The sins on one side and the great joys on the other. Um, so um, the feminists have real, problem, real problems in um, approaching this work. I'm going to make the claim, because you so often hear in, you know, in, in, in modern today that women have been oppressed and you go on like that. Go back for a moment to the beginning of our reading. Look at Penelope, Crusea, Aeneas' wife, Lavinia, his wife in, in um, Italy, Helen in the Trojan War, Antigone, we didn't, we didn't do Antigone, but um, women have always been remarkable in their power, but it's never been conceived in political terms. They're just remarkable because as, <laughs> as the other sex, <laughs> they're remarkable. Some people have said that women are in some ways more noble than men because women were created out of Adam's rib. I mean, these are biblical people, not out dust. Adam came from the dust. Women came out of a rib. They were already, you know, I, I don't want to go there, but, but I, to, I, I mean, I go back in literature. I, I don't see things the way lots of people do. Women have always had a nobility in lots of ways. They, men, they make men look stupid. Um, remember, remember when Odysseus comes home, just a, a quick example. Remember when Odysseus comes home and he kills all these men and he thinks he's this great conquering hero and he goes to his wife expecting her to open her arms and say, what a hero you are. And remember what she does? <laughs> she said, I don't know you. He, he, he gets, his ego gets flattened, you know, and he gets really angry and he, and he, and he, she makes she gives him that test about the bull, the trunk of the tree that that he cut down as the basis for their bed, and he has to prove to her that he's her husband. It's insulting. It's ingrating, degrading, because she's learned to be very careful of men in her life. You know, she's been pursued by them, and her husband's in a way for him. Anyway, that's the beginning of our literature. Um, she reduces him to his knees in that one moment when she said, "I don't know you," and. And he, he, he does, it happens at a time when he wants to say, look how heroic I am. So you've got that male ego being flattened by a wife right at the beginning of our literature. That's ancient literature. If you move up in time after Mary, after Christ and Mary, you've got Chaucer's her heroines. Remember, Constance. Do you remember the story where she was constantly experiencing... A divine order was constantly looking after her, saving her. We read the story, remember? Constance, uh, Griselda, Dorjan, who's one of the most remarkable women in Chaucer, Shakespeare's Portia, or Helena, and in the Bible we had Ruth, Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Martha, and Mary, the mother of God herself. It's one of the reasons after Christianity that women are seen to possess something that didn't come to fruition until after Mary because she's the mother of God. Without her, God wouldn't have come. That's why Chaucer and Shakespeare can write plays where, in which women do such remarkable things. They never do it trying to use power because they, their power doesn't compare to the masculine power. They don't have the physical strength of men. They do it in other ways. Priests are much closer when they wear gowns because every priest approaches the world with a sense of a weakness. 
He's vulnerable. He's serving God. In a world given to material goods, people define their lives in terms of power, their dominance over people. That's not Mary. Um, it's not the heroines of the ancient world or the Renaissance. So Hester, my argument is, is much closer to that. She, she carries wounds. She's been humiliated. Um, she's ostracized. She's a cast out. She's made to bear the signs of this sin. And in terms of the Protestant doc dogmas that are working, you know, that you're either among the saved or damned, all the evidence points to her damnation. She should be thrust to the side of the world. It's out of that that she's able to do some things that nobody else can, not even Dimsdale. The major themes of the Scarlet Letter. Um, remember that Hawthorne makes one of the two, two of the purposes of the Scarlet or the Custom House is one, he wanted to make a defense of the romantic imagination. His argument was that things are vested with a power um, that not everybody sees. So when he picks up that scarlet letter, remember, puts it on his breast, it burns. If you asked everybody else in the custom house whether those things are possible or not, they'd laugh at you because they're all leaning back in their chairs, they're all getting fat, they're all eating and sleeping. That's all they do. Hawthorne is making the defense that, that things have a greater meaning than most people say. And the role of the romantic, the, the writer who's writing under the romantic tradition is to help bring those things out so that we can see there's a greater meaning to things than they seem. That's what goes on in the story. And I'm going to come to it emphatically in a second because I just want to give some examples. That's the first. The second is he wants to justify what he's doing. He takes us into his present. It's a historical present. We're, we don't live in the past. It's his, his time. The Christian world has turned its back on its faith. It's the same world as Melville's. They're all comfortable. They're eating. Nobody's, I mean, we don't have a sense that people go to church anymore. Um, but he's using it to justify it, what he's about to tell because it belongs to an official business. It's a part of official documents. He got that letter in court records, custom house records. So it's his way of answering the critics who are gonna say, this stuff is unreal. Are you kidding? Scarlet letter, burning, these amazing things, they're not real. By putting it there, it answers those critics. It, it's official, it was a story, it actually happened. And that, in a sense, shows you the difficulties he's facing because he already lives at a time when people don't believe anymore. He's got to do something to take that away. That's one of the reasons for the Custom House. It's satirical. He's showing it's a critique of the modern world and how much it's given to comfort. And it no longer makes a place for the miraculous, the improbable, the mysterious, the sacred. So those are the those are um, two of the reasons for the custom house. Um, we've talked about poetry. Um, if I can find this, mm -mm, God bless. Um, 
on page, oh sorry, you may, in my page 118, it's in chapter 11, a couple pages in. <clears throat> this is just after the, the chapter that I want to focus on tonight, and the, the scene involving Hester and Dim, I mean, uh, Dimsdale and Chillingworth. Um, I don't want to give this away. You remember that Chillingworth is, Dimsdale is warming up to Chillingworth. And the townspeople are beginning to be aware that there's something not good in him, that they look at him as a satanic figure, that a meanness is starting to come over his countenance. They're seeing aspects to his character that, that make him suspect. And that's a change because initially their feelings were, this is just what Dimsdale needs. They need he needs a physician. But the longer he's there, the more concerned they get. And Chillingworth seems to have this something showing that they didn't see it first. And after the exchange between the two of them, we get the interior of a heart, chapter 11. Um, and you, I don't want to go there because I don't want to give it away. In the chapter before, Chillingworth sneaks into Dimsdale's room when he's asleep and he unfolds his cloth. I don't want to go there. I want to wait because it's, it's a wonderful moment of suspense. And in the next, in the next chapter, it describes him as having experienced a revelation. Chapter 11. The clergyman's shy and sensitive reserve had pocked this scheme. Roger Chillingworth, however, was inclined to be hardly, if at all, less satisfied with the aspect of affairs which Providence go down, had substituted for his black devices. A revelation, he could almost say, had been granted to him. Now it goes on to talk about Chillingworth as if, you know, up until this point, he's been... Um, careful in approaching Dimsdale because he thinks that there's something wrong but he can't get to it. That's the chapter I want to go back to. And then this thing happens. But then it turns to Dimsdale because Dimsdale has recovered from this embarrassing exchange between the two of them. And it describes in this way, this is on page 118. It's talking about Christ and giving to the disciples what he did before he left when he invokes the Holy Spirit. And by the way, we just celebrate, I mean, for some, we just celebrated the birth of the church. When he, I mean, different people put the birth at different places, but traditionally this is the central place. When he, when he gives the gifts, they all speak in tongue. This is what Hawthorne does with it. Hmm? It's 11 for the third time. Yes. I'm glad somebody saw that. <laughs> oh God. All that they lacked was the gift that descended upon the chosen disciples at Pentecost in tongues of flame, symbolizing it would seem not the power of speech in foreign and in a new language, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. That's his first. I'm going to go down. Go down a few lines. It's, it's the paragraph beginning... While thus suffering under the bodily disease, it's a long paragraph, somewhere in the middle. Go down to the next paragraph, just for a second, not improbably. It kept him down on a level with the lowest, him the man of ethereal attributes, whose voice the angels might else have listened to and answered. Because Dimsdale has such a nobility of and a spiritual. It's not a gross, he's not a jock. Everything about his features suggests something refined and f spiritual. Um, the man of ethereal attributes whose voice 
the angels might have else listened to and answered, but the very burden it was that gave him sympathy so intimate with the sinful brotherhood of mankind so that his heart vibrated in unison with theirs. Now hold on to that passage, okay, because you remember um, in, the, um, in the Hester with her needle scene that Hester was described as having a new birth. This is on chapter 5, two pages in, in the middle of the page. It was as if a new birth with stronger assimilations than the first had converted the forest land still so incongenuous to every other pilgrim and wander into Hester Penn's wild and dreary but lifelong home. She's given a sympathy to feel things with other people. It's like she's reborn, okay? This is what's being said of Dimsdale, that his own sense of sin has made him sensitive to people in a way that he wasn't before. Now go back to where we were at Pentecost in tongues of flame, symbolizing, it would seem, not the power of speech in foreign and unknown languages, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. These fathers, otherwise so apostolic, lacked heaven's last and rarest attestation of their office, the tongue of flame. They would have vainly sought, had they ever dreamed of seeking, to express the highest truths through the humblest mediums of familiar words and images. Their voices came down afar and indistinctly from the upper heights down where they habitually dwelt. It was their ability to speak in a common tongue that all people could hear that made it possible for them to communicate everything they did. Hawthorne's saying that the gift of the poet who takes this stuff seriously is to find these ethereal truths and make them available to everybody. Because if you're talking over everybody's head, who's gonna hear you? So in a sense, it's as if he's had a new birth, okay? So the theme of poetry, that the poet can make us aware of things that are right in front of us that very often have a divine, a transcendent meaning. So that we stay in touch with God the theme of suffering. Turn to the end of, um, if you, on our notes today, if you turn to the very back, I put some notes. You've seen these before because I think we did it when we did the Odyssey because remember, Odysseus is called, what was Odysseus called? Long-suffering Odysseus. He was away from home for 20 years. He kept longing to get home to his wife, his son. He wants to return. The theme of nostos. I don't know, if, I mean, most good fathers, most husbands, have to spend time away from home. They've got to provide. Somebody has, that, that's part of the fall. Um, they have to provide. Um, the woman wasn't put there to subjugate her, it's somebody has to provide. But the result of it is, Odysseus was away at war for 10 years, fighting a war, and then 10 years on his journey home. So he was away for 20 years, during those 20 years, his son grew up without him. He's called long-suffering Odysseus. Remember, nine of those years are spent under the influence of women, myth, um, archetypes. Um, with Calypso, he's there on the island for eight and a half years, weeping to get home. So he's suffering. Homer is showing us that suffering is an essential condition of wisdom. If we don't suffer, we don't learn to see the meaning of things. We take them for granted. So turn to the, next to the last page. 
suffering, to feel pain or discomfort in body or mind, to endure, to put up with something painful or unpleasant, to have a disease, illness. You can go on to appear to be less good. I think it's important to distinguish suffering from anguish because I think anguish is generally a more spiritual pain or torment when somebody's punishing us. But I want to read this to you. It's, it's something I read during the Odyssey because I, I just think it's a wonderful um, exposition on pain. How Jesus draws us to himself. It's by Louis Lavelle, um, a French philosopher. In reality, we suffer only in our relations with others. The possibility of suffering measures the intimacy and the intensity of the bonds which unite us to another being. We do not suffer in our relation with those who are indifferent. In fact, indifference in some sense protects us against suffering. What indifference ceases, our capacity for suffering returns. And it's proportionate to our interest in and our affection for others. The more we love somebody, the, the more they wound us or hurt us, the greater the suffering. We all know that. And sometimes it could be nothing more than a word or a look, you know, that sets us off. It emerges as soon as the bonds which unite us to the other are threatened. It's then that the bonds of friendship testify to their existence and their depth. It's impossible not to seek the reasons for my sufferings, not to undertake to justify them. We are told that in pain we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we have just lost. Somebody hurt us. We let's say it, let's say a marriage, a child, doesn't matter. Let's say we don't talk with our husband or our wife for two days. That loss is not small. If we're holding on to something that long, it's because we've lost something true, dear to us. We don't have it. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it. But the very awareness of this loss introduces us, as is always held, a growth of consciousness which is not itself a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. Is everybody following? Our, you know, the, the old adage that um, suffering leads to wisdom. We can't attain wisdom except through suffering because it's only in suffering things that we learn to view them in another way. We learn to question ourselves or the reasons we suffer or what caused it or... So suffering has always been um, an important source of discovery, self-discovery. It is in the scarlet letter. Hester's described as having a new birth. She has a sensitivity to people that, she, that the other people do not have. Why would they have it? They go around thinking they're better than other people. Why would they even be involved? It's only because she suffered that she's so sensitive to what other people feel. And, and interestingly, we'll see if it's not clear already, other people begin to sense that in her and go to her. They start to turn to her, not the ministers. The men are in their heads. Um, and the same thing happens to Dimsdale. He begins to have a sensitivity to things because of the guilt he carries. He looks at people differently than he did when he didn't suffer. So the theme of suffering. Now, how does Hawthorne do what he does? I just want to mention a couple of his techniques and then I want to go to that chapter. Um, Hawthorne repeatedly 
shows us the outside of something like he did with the five women in the beginning and then he'll take us to Hester and he'll go into her inside so we go into her interior. The importance of that is this, look here, this is really important. When we get those five women, we don't get any sense of their interiority at all. We get the sense that they're just superficial, that they live on surfaces. When we get to Hester and her suffering, you know, when she's in the pillory or when she goes back to the cell, she, she has fantasies, she has to imagine something to escape her pain, she thinks about things. She has an interior life. It's what, she's, she's two or three dimensional. The other people live on surfaces. The Wilson, the governor, they just see people, I mean, that, that's one of his great critiques. They only see people according to the outside. So one of the things that Hawthorne is doing by moving from outside to inside is helping us to see how important the, the spiritual interior is of another person. Because one of the things that those Protestant doctrines did was to encourage people to read on the outside and make judgments based on that outside. If you're in adultery, you belong to the damned. That's it. You don't have to bother about learning who that person is or what's going on. Okay? The doctrines encourage people to judge, make judgments on the basis of external appearances. That's one of his techniques. Another is that he very often uses what, what some have called um, multiple options or multiple possibilities. Go through the book, remember there, when it happens numerous times when, when remember when Dimsdale's on the scaffold and there seems to appear a scarlet letter in the sky? Some people said this, some people said this, some people said this, some people said this. It'll happen at the very end because Dimsdale, if you haven't gotten there, Dimsdale will rise that scaffold again. And he's going to resolve the action because he's going to do something then that nobody could have predicted. And Pearl said, until that moment happens, we will never be together. We'll go to that passage tonight. But he doesn't. But the effect of that is some people said, this is what happened. Others say, this is what happened. This is what happened. And you know that in church. Very often you get people saying, this is what it meant. This is what it meant. Or this is what she's doing. Or that's what she's doing. Or One of the things Hawthorne is doing, it's, it's, he's being Socratic. Remember um, the, the Socratic method was to raise questions that would make people aware that they didn't have the answers to things and it would cause them pain. That was a principle that they all got angry because they thought they had the answers and they didn't. He was raising questions to make them wonder so that they lived more with wonder. Hawthorne's doing that because it's an answer to the problem. All these Puritans think they have all the answers to everything. But he's presenting scenes where he often describes the results of them in terms of different interpretations. It meant this. No, it meant this. No, it meant this. Um, I want to come back to that because it raises a different question, but that's another one of his techniques. Now finally, and I want to do this kind of briefly, because I really do want to get to that chapter on the leech. Bear with me for a minute. I'm going to go very quickly through some scenes just to highlight this. 
If a Protestant were to walk into a Catholic Mass and see a priest, don't restrain yourself on this. Be charitable, but don't restrain yourself on it. If a Protestant were to walk into a Catholic Mass and see the priest consecrating the bread and wine, what would he see? I want to take a minute with this. What are those signs of? Because they are signs, right? There's a host and wine. They're signs. The scarlet letter is a sign. I'm a sign. Suzanne's a sign. We've all got these. Everything. How do we read? My opening question, what do we see when we see another person? What does that mean? Like a stone. If a Protestant were to walk in, a fundamentalist for sure, walk into a Catholic Mass and see the priest consecrating the host and the wine, what would he see? I'm saying this really honestly. Symbolism? Hmm? Like symbolism? Symbolizing what? What would he see, Karen? Or, whoop, yeah. Sorry? They would say he's just going through some motions. Yeah, what's the bread and wine for him? Or just that, right? Yeah, they would, they would probably say they're doing that in remember if they were good, they would say they're doing that in remembrance of Christ. But it's bread and wine. They're commemorating something. Somebody be not nice for a minute. What else, what else would they say? Give it. Huh? They'd say it's a form of devil worship. Yeah. Are you? I'm not kidding. They would say that's that's a blasphemy. For them to be, I'm not kidding for a minute because there are people. Um, they see it as a blasphemy. That they're pretend they're performing a blasphemous act. They're pretend. Honestly, take this for granted. This they're, because they're saying that's nothing more than a wafer and wine. To 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 pretend that that's the body. And the blood of Christ is blasphemous. It's exactly what the Jews said about Christ. It's a blasphemous act and they'd want to kill him. That's what they did with Christ. They'd look at it as a horror. The, the more gentle-minded or more, you know, wouldn't say that. They would say it's just a commemoration. But if somebody were to take his thoughts to its roots, it would be that. What's the difference in the way that a Catholic would look at that and why? Because it's just bread and wine. What do we what do we see when we read signs? What does a Catholic see? And why? We see transcendence there. We see something more that can't be seen. We believe in miracles. Sorry? We believe in miracles. <laughs> right. 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 We don't see it's a mystery. We don't? I think that's the point we do, yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have to use the eyes of faith. Hmm? See it, Bob? When he holds the host up at the chalice up, you got to feel that that's Christ doing that. Either it's that or it's just the priest is being a fool and we're being blasphemous. I mean, really. Take this I mean, read, get serious about this. Either that's blasphemous for a guy to be saying that or it's real. 
and a miracle is taking place. Um, Even the little ones from First Communion, the day before we do a rehearsal so they can try the host, and, you know, and some of the kids the next day were telling me, the, the, the one that we have was much better. <laughs> 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 yeah, right. Oh, God. Oh, God. Okay, here, follow me for a second. I want to just, I'm going to go through this very, very quickly, so stay with me for it. In my page, Sixty-six and sixty-seven. This is the very opening of chapter five, Hester or Needle. <coughs> First paragraph at the bottom. Throughout them all, giving up her individuality, she would become the gen. She would become the. Okay, I, let me make this clear, just so that we have some sense, because I'm going to fly through this. Remember that Calvin and Luther did away with almost all the sacraments. Luther changed transubstantiation to consubstantiation. You know that. Transubstantiation means it's completely, it is, because it goes back to the belief at the beginning that Christ was fully human, fully God. One of the early heresies was he was only human or only God. Luther slips into one of those heresies because he's saying, no, it's still a wafer. It only, become, it only becomes the body and blood of Christ through an act of faith. So after the, the communion's over, you can throw the host away. Because what made it real was your faith. So it does not have an objective reality in itself. Is that clear? Um, so what's present in a sign? To a modern empiricist scientist, it'll be nothing but its matter. That's it. That's the empirical mindset. To a Protestant, it may be Lutheran, it may be, um, it, it could be, by an act of faith, change when you receive it, but that's an act of faith. Catholic says, no, when, once it's consecrated, it's consecrated. It's real. So, how we read signs, and I'm going back, I mean, sort of loving this for a moment, we were talking about stones and um, departures, or go back to any work we've read, We've constantly talked about the fact that some things mean more than they seem, like Achilles' shield. We can go back forever. Um, so here, it's Hawthorne, the, the, the narrator, is describing Hester as a sign. Throughout the mall, giving up her individuality, she would become the general symbol at which the preacher and moralist might point and in which they might vivify and embody their images of woman's frailty and sinful passion. So, in her pregnancy, she's a sign that she belongs to the damned. Because according to Calvin, you are predestined towards damnation or salvation, one or the other. And whatever signs you showed give evidence or one or the other. I'm gonna make this really stark in a minute. Everybody's following, yeah? So because of her pregnancy, she's a, she's a clear indication that she belongs to the class of the damned. Thus the young and pure would be taught to look at her 
with the scarlet letter flaming on her breast, at her the child of honorable parents, at her the Notice it keeps saying, staring at her. Never seeing endure or wondering about her, they're looking at her like she's an object. We're, we're getting, it, it's so important to see this, we're getting a mode of thinking. Is that clear? It's a mode of being. They're looking at, 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 at. They never print penetrate her interior. They never wonder what, what it's like or whether she might be saved. At her the child of honorable parents, at her the mother of babe that would hereafter be a woman, at her who had once been innocent, as the figure, the body, the result, the reality of sin, and over her grave the infamy that must carry, thither would be her only monument. She's a sign. Okay? Go to 72. It's a few pages towards the end. This is close to the end of the same chapter. It starts her imagination. Um, Hester, if altogether fancy, it was nevertheless too potent to be resisted. She felt or fancied then that the scarlet letter had endowed her with a new sense. She shuddered to believe, yet could not help believing, that it gave her a sympathetic knowledge of the hidden sins in others' hearts. She was terror-stricken by the revelation that was thus made. What were they? Here's my question. Is everybody following? <coughs> she looks at other people and she's terrified of herself because she's thinking she may be imputed in evil to those things, those people that they may not have. Just a projection of her own evil. What were they? Could they be other than the insidious whispers of the bad angel who would have fain have persuaded the struggling woman as yet only half his victim that the outward guise of purity was but a lie and that if truth were everywhere to be shown a scarlet letter would blaze forth on every by the way, one of Hawthorne's great stories, one of his famous is called Young Goodman Brown. It's about a young guy, Goodman Brown, going into the forest and discovering that every one of the people he admired is there in a black mass. He loses his faith. That's the story. Is everybody following? Because, and I hope everybody sees the relevant. There are moments in our life of those people that we look up to disappoint us, and we one of the dangers we can lose our faith or trust that people aren't as they seem. What Hawthorne's making us aware of is that everybody is in, or he's saying every, the brotherhood of sin, everybody is in sin, even if people don't admit it. Um, so she's struggling with a loss of faith because of what this new birth has given to her. Page 76 and 7. Um, this is when she looks into Pearl's eyes and sees something demonic. She sees a reflection of herself. Her mother, while Pearl was yet an infant, grew acquainted with a certain peculiar look that warned her when it would be lab labor thrown away to resist, persuade, or plead. It was a look so intelligent, yet inescapable, so perverse, sometimes so malicious, but generally accompanied by a wild flow of spirits that Hester could not help questioning of such moments whether Pur was a human child. How much do we objectify another person, turn another person into an object because of the way we see them? And if an object, it could be evil, an evil object. Um, 80, 81, um, 
Um, this is when Hester looks into her eyes and says, at last her shot being all expended, the child stood still and gazed at Hester with that little laughing image of a fiend peeping out. Or whether it peeped or no, her mother so imagined it from the unsearchable abyss of her own black eyes. Child, what art thou? Are you real or not? She even says, I have no heavenly father. This is the end of six. Um, tell me, tell me, repeated Pearl. She says, who am I? Where did I come from? Hester could not resolve the query, being herself a dismal labyrinth of doubt. She remembered betwixt a smile and a shudder the talk of the neighboring townspeople who seeking vainly elsewhere for the child's paternity and observing some of her odd attributes had given out that poor little Pearl was a demon offspring such as ever since old Catholic times had occasionally been seen on earth. If you grow up, I'm really serious about this, it, I just, it, I mean, it, we think we're so modern. If you grow up believing in Calvin's, people do. You're either going to look at people as damned or saved. Imagine, imagine the condition of hypertension that you would carry with you wondering in your life. Doubting, are you among the fiends? Are you among the damned? Are the doubts that you feel real or imagined, do they come from some evil within yourselves? Those are the things that would define your life. I, I, I know that personally from somebody close. It just shocks me to think it even happens, but it does. Um, go to the Governor's Hall, chapter 7. When they're there, um, I think when they're leaving, remember, they pass by, remember in the old mansions, they had um, the, the armor of a knight standing still and put together so it looked like an actual knight. So they're passing out and, and, and Pearl and Hester stop before this armor because it's like a mirror and it serves to reflect the two of them back. This is Hawthorne's way of critiquing this fact, what we're talking about, the way we read sides. Page 86. It's a couple of pages at the, uh, from the end of 7. They approached the door which was an arch form and flanked on each side by a narrow tower or projection of the edifice in both of which were lattice windows with wooden shutters to close over them at need. Lifting the iron hammer that hung at the portal, Hister Prynne gave a summons which was answered by one of the governor's bond servants, a freeborn Englishman, now a servant slave, during the term he was the property of the master. So um, they're out the door, they're ready to leave, and then they see this coat of armor. This is the next to the last page of the chapter. Mother, cried she, I see you look there. So now she's looking at the armor because the armor is reflecting back Hester as she is, as in a mirror. Except remember, hold on, everybody look. So it's what's concave. So it's projecting what's in front of it and giving it a larger dimension than it does in reality. Okay? Mother, look, look. Hester looked by way of humoring the child and she saw that owing to the peculiar effect of this convex mirror, the scarlet letter was represented in exaggerated and hygienic proportions so as to be greatly the most prominent feature of her appearance. In truth, she seemed absolutely hidden behind it. Pearl pointed upwards also at a similar picture in the headpiece, smiling at her mother with elfish intelligence that was so familiar in expression on her small physiognomy. That look of naughty merriment was likewise reflected in the mirror. 
with so much breadth and intensity of effect that it made Hester Prynne <coughs> feel as if it could not be the image of her own child, but of an imp who was seeking to mold itself into pearl shape. Now hold on, right? This is just a description, naturalistic. Okay, nothing extraordinary is happening. They're passing by the suit of armor and they look into it. But how does this scene function? What's the symbolic effect? What is Hossor, why does he present it the way he does? What does it tell us about what's going on in the action? That her sin has become bigger than her. That the scarlet letter that was spiritually put upon her. Sorry, see? The scarlet letter that was spiritually put upon her is larger than life. Yeah. Yeah, just she disappears. And even the elfish nature of a child becomes magnified. He's showing us what happens when you have those beliefs. That's the way you see things. It's just another indication symbolically of what's, what we're seeing all the time in the people. I mean, it's a real thing. So it's an amazing way of showing this is actually what goes on inside of a person when they see a person. So my question earlier, what do we see when we see a person? What are we really seeing? Going over, um, I could go on and on. I'm going to stop here. I want to get to this chapter. Um, I want to get to this chapter. Between um, Dimsdale and um, and um, Chillingworth. Um, Chillingworth and Dimsdale are now roommates. Everybody's initially glad because they're seeing Dimsdale diminish in form. It, it seems as if he's weakening and people are concerned. And they have hopes that Chillingworth as a doctor will be able to help him. And um, Chillingworth is out in the yard, outside the window, planting um, some things and picking plants because he's learned from his experiences with the Indians how certain herbs are medicinal and can help human beings and others not. And so, um, so this is on 108. It's, it's two pages in on chapter 10. Dimsdale says, where did you get these things? Chillingworth, even in the graveyard here at hand, answered the physician, continuing his employment. They are new to me. I found them growing on a grave which, brought, which bore no tombstone nor other memorial of the dead man, save these ugly weeds that have taken upon themselves to keep him in remembrance. They grew out of his heart and typify, here it is, that is, it's a sign, it's a sign of something, typify it me. Um, it may be some hideous secret that was buried with him and which he had done better to confess during his lifetime. Now those words are telling because you know that the Chillingworth wants to get Dimsdale to confess. So all of his, these little insinuations, these hints, are intended to get him to open up. Perchance, said Dimsdale, he earnestly desired it but could not. Wherefore, rejoined the physician, wherefore not? Now this is crucial. I think this is probably in some ways the dramatic center of the novel because Dimsdale is a prototype of the modern scientist, the modern secular who believes he can 
sorry, Chillingworth. Um, he's a prototype of the modern scientist, a secular who believes natural knowledge is sufficient to do everything, including heal the soul. So he's going to make an argument that you don't, that for anybody to be cured, all you need is this, natural knowledge. Dimsdale, as a clergyman, is going to say, no, he's not going to give his soul out to anybody except God. Now hold on to this because I think this is absolutely central to this book, and I'll come to the reason why in a second. It, it goes to something, here, it goes to something the book doesn't deal with that's implied in it everywhere. Anybody want to take, it's one of the sacraments. Which one? Be still. Sorry? Right. Wait, is that confession? Yeah. Absolutely. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. It go, this, this is fundamental to the action of this work. Dimsdale has nobody to confess to. He has to hold on to this. Chillingworth is saying the best thing you can do for yourself is let somebody know. There are no longer sacraments here. What's going to happen? This is, how, this is how stark the drama is right at this point, okay? This is a, a contest between two opposing ways of looking at the human soul at the center of this book. Wherefore not, since all the powers of nature call so earnestly for the confession of sin that these black weeds have sprung out of a buried earth to make mankind, we've got all these gifts of nature, why not use them? That, good sir, is but a fantasy of yours, he's Timsdale. There can be, if I forebode aright, no power short of the divine mercy to decide whether by uttered words or by type or emblem the secrets that may be, be buried in a human heart. The only one who can have access to those is God. Nobody else should. It's too holy. A knowledge of men's hearts will be needful um, to the completest solution to that problem. And I conceive, moreover, that the hearts holding such miserable secrets as you speak of will yield them up that last day, not with reluctance, but with a joy or unutterable. Then why not reveal them here? Why not now? Dimsdale, they mostly do. Many, many a poor soul hath given uh, its confidence to me, not only on the deathbed, but while strong in life and fair in um, reputation and ever after such. He's giving an argument for it. He says, when people have confessed to me, they've all felt better. Whether they were dying or young. It was like this great burden was lifted. Go on over. Um, yet some men bury their secrets thus, Dimsdale says. True, there are such men, but not to suggest more obvious reasons. It may be that they are kept silent by the very constitution of their nature. Or, guilty as they may be, retaining nevertheless a zeal for God's glory and man's welfare, they shrink from displaying themselves black and filthy in the view of men. Because thenceforth no good can be achieved by them, no evil of the past be redeemed by better services. So their own unutterable torment, they go about among their fellow creatures looking pure as new fallen snow, while their hearts are all speckled, spotted with iniquity. These men deceive, Chillingworth says, they fear to take up the shame that rightfully belongs to them, their love of man, their zeal for God's service, these holy impulses may or may not coexist in their hearts with the evil inmates to which their guilt has unbarred the door and which must needs propagate a hellish breed within them. 
But if they seek to glorify God, let them not lift a heavenward their unclean lift heavenward their unclean hands. If they would serve their fellow men, let them do it by making manifest the power and reality of conscience in constraining them to penitential self-abasement, which thou have me to believe, O wise and pious friend, that a false show can be better, can be more for God's glory or man's welfare than God's own truth. Um, go on over a few um, paragraphs. There is no law, no reverence for authority, no regard for human ordinances or opinions, right or wrong, mixed up with that child's composition, remarked he as much to himself as to his companion. I saw her the other day despatter the governor himself with water at the cattle trough of Spring Lake. What in heaven's name is she? Is the imp altogether evil? Has she effect, affections? Has she any discoverable principle of being? Now just for a second, why did Hawthorne introduce Pearl at this moment of the debate between the two men? What does he accomplish by doing that? Yeah. Or the sign of it, yeah. And he doesn't know how to read it. If he, I mean, stop and think about it. If he's secular, and this is his view of Pearl, he can't make, he doesn't know if she's a child or not. She may be an imp of evil. He, can't, he doesn't know a human soul. He knows physical things. He's learned things about medicine and herbs and things like that. But take a look at his view of, and he, this is repeated. We see it a number of times. His view of her pearl is he doesn't know what to make of her. Is she a real child or not? Has she any discoverable principle of being? Wait, for a Catholic, a Catholic would assume, this is, I mean, it amazes me when I watch modern movies. It doesn't matter who the child is. What is the assumption of a Catholic regarding that human child? It's nature. Huh? God's creation, it's good, it's a gift. Could any Catholic look at a child and think evil of that child? I mean, not according to his beliefs. But if you're a Protestant or a Calvinist, you'd have to look into it and wonder, what's the being of this? I mean, these, we've been dealing with this question since Melville. Except now we're getting it in very human terms in a family. Father, mother, child. It's getting worked out now in a family. Was Joey Fourth really trying to help him now, or was he trying to make him sicker so that he wouldn't confess her? Initially, I think he wanted to help him, but he's always had a reservation thinking that Dimdale seemed to be failing and his his um, methods, his approaches weren't working and his assumption was that he had, he believed that there was something deeper going on and that for him to perform a real cure he had to find out what the problem in the soul was and Dimsdale wasn't opening up. That's why he, there's this discussion is taking place. He's really urging Dimsdale to, con he's asking is there something more going on that you haven't told me? If I'm going to be your physician you've got to tell me everything or I can't heal you. That's his argument. He would get to the, it, it mentioned three times, he would get to the bottom of that. 
I don't think I, I, okay. I, I'm pretty sure he wants to find out he doesn't know and it, it, it I mean the only ground for suspicions is that Dimsdale is generally failing in health and Chilling he's an intelligent man but his motives just get darker and darker wait because I want to get there hold on because this is really good um, Pearl comes up and Pearl and Hester are looking at, at Dimsdale in the window and, and Chillingworth there and um, he, Dims, Chillingworth wondering how do we understand, is she, is, is there a principle to being when a Catholic would think all being is good, comes from God, there's nothing God created that's evil, so there wouldn't be that question. None save the freedom of broken law, answered Dimsdale, whether capable of good I know not. Think about how different that is from a Catholic position. The child promptly overheard their voices, go down a few lines. Detecting his emotion, Pearl clapped her little hands in the most extravagant ecstasy. Hester Prynne likewise and involuntarily looked up, and all these four persons, old and young, regarded one another in silence. So the child laughed aloud and shouted, come away, mother, come away, or yonder old black man will catch you. He hath got hold of the minister already. Come away, mother, or he will catch you. But he cannot catch little Pearl. Anybody want to comment on that? So the innocence of a child saw. The what? The innocence of, of a the child innocence. saw evil. What's your response to that, Mary? Just that and... Children are smarter than we are. Yeah. <laughs> There's a real prescience this extraordinary intelligence, and it's interesting that you'd put it innocence, that because everybody looks at her as a sort of evil imp. She's the, she's the sign of the sin, so people tend to look at her as evil. But she has some intuitive sense that something's wrong with Chillingworth, and that he's got some influence. So she seems to have a sense of this that. Okay. Here's where two, two passages, I'm going to look quickly to tie this up. Um, they leave. Um, Dimsdale got really upset in his exchange with Chillingworth because Chillingworth was pushing him to confess and Dimsdale's position is, I'm not going to confess till, any, till I confess to my God. Um, Okay, Dimsdale, and um, they sort of reconcile, and, and um, Dimsdale's apologetic, and the two make up, and they go about their ordinary affairs. But Chillingworth has become more and more suspicious, even now more so because of Dimsdale's response to him. And one day when Dimsdale, shortly after that, is sleeping soundly, he tiptoes in on the end of chapter the leeching is patient. Um, it proved not difficult to reestablish the intimacy. The young clergyman, after a few hours of privacy, he fell asleep. Um, Chillingworth comes in. He marveled indeed at the violence with which he had thrust back the kind old man when merely proffering the advice which it was his to bestow. With these remorseful feelings, they make up. Um, um, and 
Shillingsworth's response is, a rare case, I must needs look deeper into it. A strange sympathy betwixt soul and body, were it not for the sake, for art's sake, I must search this matter to the bottom. This is amazing. Okay, here's, this, this is sort of, it really is um, prophetic in an amazing way. One of the criticisms of the Church of Modern Science is that it can propose these things with indifference. It can create a bomb. Because very often if you're doing something in a spirit of disinterest, you have no ethical reasons guiding you. There's no ethical motives. You just do it for that reason. Chillingworth has reached a point now where he says, there's something going on here that I don't see. I want to look into it farther. That's it. There's no other motive. Just for art's sake. And we know that his soul is darkening while it happens. He's not bringing a charity to this or an ethical decision. He just wants to get to this man's soul. A rare case, were it only for the art's sake, I must search into this matter to the bottom. It came to pass, this is shortly afterwards, Dimsdale's asleep, Chillingworth tiptoes into his room, and then this is what happens. Then indeed, Mr. Dimsdale shuddered and slightly started because Chillingworth is opening the, the shirt to look at his breast. After breezepoth, the physician turned away, but with what a wild look of wonder, joy, and horror Wonder, joy, and horror, with what a ghastly rapture, as it were, too mighty to be expressed only by the eye and features, therefore bursting forth through the whole ugliness of his feature and making itself even riotously manifest by the extravagant gestures with which he threw up his arms towards the ceiling and stamped his foot upon the floor. Had a man seen old Roger, and notice it's, he's always described old Roger Chillingworth, almost always. That's his way of saying the old man. I hope everybody's, that's from Paul, the old man, not the new man in Christ, the old man. Chillingworth is a representative of a type. He's the old man. He's governed by that old world. Had a man seen old Roger, Roger Chillingworth at that moment of his ecstasy, he would have had no need to ask how Satan comports himself when a precious human soul is lost to heaven and won into his kingdom. But what distinguished the physician's ecstasy from Satan was the trait of wonder in it. What's just happened? What's just happened? Huh? He found what? Right, how? Right, right. So, and I guess that's why he searched that. Yeah. Why this, the combination of that description? At that moment of his ecstasy, he would have had no need to ask how Satan, with the, a wild look of wonder, Wonder, joy, and horror. How Satan comports himself when a precious human soul is lost to heaven and won into his kingdom. What distinguished the physician's ecstasy from Satan's was the trait of wonder in it. Explain that.
A great what? Sin. Yeah. Everything that he wanted in the past time was found in the past. Well, when I feel wonder, it's because I see something or experience something that I didn't expect. It's usually greater or something I couldn't have imagined. So Maybe his wonder is, could be anything. How easy it was, how he solved his mystery, or how he, how he got mystery. the top man, you know. Evidently, this was the holiest man in the whole, like, you know, mm -hmm. the holiest man in the whole community. He's going to drag him down to hell. But also, how much influence he has on him. Okay. Sorry? How much influence he has on him as his own physician, because they have a close relationship, so he he might be able to have influence on him yeah. for his own <laughs> purposes. I think he's drugging him. That's what I think. Drugging? He had to no. make him sleep that day because it said he walked in with no particular caution. So I was saying that he was so sleepy beyond what he would normally do. So I wondered if I wondered if Chillings were to give him something. To make him sleep. So and we, yeah, I don't remember that. Doc, how are you seeing us? What do you? Well, because it makes the contrast. Can you speak up? Because it makes the contrast between Chillingsworth's wonder and Satan. I mean, the, the, the expression of ecstasy. Yeah. Chillingsworth has some wonder in it, Satan's doesn't. So Satan knows what the human heart is capable of. And he expects to be able to capitalize on that mm -hmm. and, and win the soul. I think that Dimsdale is delighted at... Chillingworth. I'm sorry, Chillingworth. He's delighted at the prospect that has suddenly been made clear to him yeah. that he has, as he says, he has all of this power over his man now knows for sure that he is the man uh, and the fact that all of this is coming together must seem like a wonderful gift. Yeah, I, the question I have is whether it doesn't show still a division in Dimsdale or Chillingworth that the part of him that's human and um, who approaches the world with the disinterest of a science can still be um, moved to wonder because he's got an inquisitive mind, he wants to know. He's a scientist, but I mean, there's a part of him that looks. So there's a part of, my reading of it is that there's a part of him still human um, that experiences wonder because it's shocking for him to see what he, I mean, we don't know it's there, I, but there's gotta be, I, don't, I mean, I, the sense is it's a scarlet A or some mark, some, we don't know. It's, by the way, I think that's, that's a, a mark of Hawthorne's genius. He doesn't put it down, but, but we know Chillingworth saw something, and it has to be evidence in his mind of that he's the father, but he doesn't give it. But it, it seems to me that there's still something human in Chillingworth capable of wonder, even though at that moment, the part of him that wants vengeance is exhilarated, because he knows now who the father is, and he's now he's now he, he's going to go after him definitely. I want to I want to close with two quick passages. 
um, to just leave you with this and then go back to my opening question. Remember earlier when, when Hester and Pearl had visited the governor and, um, and um, we are... Hester Right. In the governor's hall, it's really interesting that um, Wilson says when they ask what they're going to do, that Wilson says, do not use profane knowledge. The only appeal that they should make is to scripture. It's another reinforcement of how divided this community is that only sola scriptura, only scripture can answer this problem. So when they say appeal to something else, Wilson says, no. It's at the end of um, eight, the very end he says, no, it would be sinful in such a question to follow the clue of profane philosophy. Better to fast and pray upon it and still better. So scripture is the answer. Um, but hold on, the, the, I just wanted to quickly call this to mind because it's, it's a wonderful passage. When, when um, Pearl and Hester leave, remember where they're leaving, Mistress Hibbins from above cackles down. It's Bellingham's bitter sister. The very end of chapter um, 8, the elf, the elf child and minister. Hiss, hiss, said she, while her ill omen physiognomy seemed to cast a shadow over the cheerful newness of the house. Wilt thou go with us tonight? There will be a merry company in the forest, and I well nigh promise the black man that comely Hester Prynne should make one. Make my excuse to him, so please you, Hester says. I must tarry at home and keep watch over my little pearl. Had they taken her from me, I would willfully have gone with thee into the forest and signed my name in the black man's book too, and that with mine own blood. We shall have thee soon and on, said the witch lady, frowning. She knows she'll get her. If they had taken Pearl, what, what's being said here is Hester would have damned herself in despair. Her despair would have been so great. So, even though they look at her as the sign of her sin, once again, I mean, think about the difference between... How would, how would a Puritan have written this novel? Could they even have come close to what Hawthorne's doing? Because they would have looked at Pearl and said, get her out. Get her away from her mother. Her mother's evil. If there's any chance for the child. And we're learning here that that child saves her. So if she's, remember, we've seen her experience of sin has constituted a rebirth for Hester. She looks at the world differently. Everybody looks at Pearl as a sin. We're learning here that if they'd taken Pearl, Hester would have been gone, lost. She would have gone into the forest with the black mass, that sort of stuff. But here, if we suppose the interview betwixt Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic and not a parable, was already an illustration of the young minister's argument against sundering the relationship of a fallen mother to the offspring of her family. Even thus early had the child saved her from Satan's snare. Could a Puritan have written that line? Not at all, because they would have said, get her out. Hawthorne is showing that very often, remember the, the, the phrase, brotherhood of sin, that very often it's as our, think of a pastor who does confessions for all of us. He knows, he knows the sins of all of us. What, what would happen if he got self-righteous and condemned us all? 
take away reconciliation or confession. He knows our sins. I mean, that's sort of staggering to think about. Um, Hawthorne's making it clear right now how important Pearl was for Hester's salvation. Okay? Now go to the end of that... Huh? Is she the re redeemer of Hester? The redeemer of Hester. Is Pearl the redeemer of Hester? I mean, we'll see. But at this point, it's clear how important she is in that direction. That, you know, we've got to talk about what the redemption is at the end. Turn to chapter 11 at the very end. This is the passage, um, the chapter in which I read that passage about the tongues of flame and the brotherhood of... Remember, Hawthorne is saying that one of the gifts given to Dimsdale was like the tongues of flame. That he brought these ethereal experiences down and by putting them in a common language, everybody could understand them. So it's like an analogy to the tongues of flame, tongues of fire. Everybody can understand this language. How important it is that a poet be able to reach us at that level. So he speaks to all of us. Because remember, the whole point here, the brotherhood of sin. The minute people start thinking they're better, they won't understand, communication won't happen. But here's the irony that I want to leave everybody with. Chapter, the interior of a heart. It's chapter 11 towards the end. Um, Dimsdale is meditating on his sin and he contemplates how important it is for him to make a confession. Okay? Um, it's inconceivable the agony with which this public veneration tortured him. Everybody loves him. Who was he? He longed to speak out from his own pulpit the full height of his voice and tell the people what he was. I whom you behold in these black garments of the priesthood, I who ascend the sacred desk and turn my pale face. He goes on, I whose daily life you discern, I whose footsteps you sub I who breathe the parting prayer over your dying friends, to whom the amen sounded fatally from some world which they had quitted, I, your pastor, whom you to reverence and trust him utterly, a pollution and a lie. More than once, Mr. Dimsdale had gone into the pulpit with a purpose never to come down the steps until he should have spoken words like, he wants to make a confession. More than once he'd cleared his throat, drawn the long deep, he goes on, more than once, nay more than a hundred times, he had actually spoken, spoken, but how? He told his hearers, he says to his congregation, um, he told his, his hearers that he was altogether vile, a viler companion of the vilest, the worst of sinners, an abomination, a thing of an unimaginable iniquity, and that the only wonder was that they did not see his wretched body shriveled up before their eyes by the burning wrath of the Almighty. Could there be a plainer speech than this? Would not the people start up in their seats by a simultaneous impulse and tear him down out of the pulpit which he defiled? Not so indeed. They heard it all and did but reverence him the more. They little guessed that deadly purport lurked in those self-condemning words. The godly youth said they among themselves, the saint on earth. Every time he did, all they did was admire him the more. Alas, if he discerned such sinfulness in his own white soul, what horrid spectacle would he behold in thine or mine? The minister well knew, subtle but remorseful hypocrite that he was, 
the light in which his vague confession would be viewed. He had striven to put a cheat upon himself by making the avowal of a guilty conscience, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. He has no self-deception, he knows. What he's doing is hypocritical. He's presenting himself as a sinner. Okay, I wanna, I've got a question. He had spoken the very truth and transformed it into the various falsehoods, and yet by the constitution of his nature, he loved the truth and loathed the lie as few men ever did. Therefore, above all things else, he loathed his miserable self. And you know that at this point, he, continue, he continues to diminish because his deceit is eating away at him. So the attrition that Chillingworth sees is, is going to worsen. Okay, now just, I want to put this together. You know in the next scene, Dimsdale is going to go out in the night. In the middle of the night, he's going to ascend the scaffold. And, in, and so in one sense, it's going to be a confession. But it's at nighttime. And people are going to pass by. Some people are going to say they saw a, lay, an, a letter A in the sky. What does Hester say to him, Doc? When she off the wind with the hand exchange? Hester's pearl. Or I mean pearl. Um, she, says she dropped, she said, he's, he takes her hand. He takes her hand. And she says, will thou take my mother and my hand at noon, noon. tomorrow on the spot? And he says, basically, not in this lifetime. And so she drops his hand and he asks her why. And she said, because I forgot what. Just. You're not good um, because you won't you won't appear with mother and me on the In daylight. Okay, does everybody see the crisis we're at? At this point, we've got an image of Dimsdale wanting to confess and actually confessing in sermons. And then uh, the following that night, he go, he ascends the um, the scaffold. People pass by. Hester and Pearl join him. She refuses to take his hand unless he's willing to do it in daylight, and he says it won't happen. So one of the questions. So a number of things are increasing the suspense right now. Chillingworth knows what's he going to do to the what's he going to do to Dimzel? He This is Iago setting out for Othello. I hope everybody sees that. He wants his soul. Um, he, he wants his soul. He's going after the way Iago. It's an evil man seeking to take Dimsdale's soul. And um, we know that there's this pressure in Dimsdale to confess and Pearl says she won't take his hand unless he will do it in daylight. And he says it won't happen. So two things are building up. One is what will Chillingworth do and the other is Will Dimsdale be reconciled with his daughter? What will happen? Now let me ask before we leave, just two minutes, because we're at the end of time. Why does it say, he had striven to put cheat upon himself by making the avowal of a guilty conscience, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. Explain that sentence. Without the momentary relief of being self-deceived, why is this not a genuine confession? He says it to the congregation. 
but but Hawthorne, this is and this is the beauty. He's describing interiorly what's going on with Dimsdale. Dimsdale is we know that he made these confessions, but inwardly, what's going on with him? He'd striven to put a, um, a cheat upon himself, um, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. What's wrong with this confession? And what's wrong with the confession on the scaffold in the next scene? I hope everybody's seeing this because we've talked about how important this is. One of the tenets of the Reformation was doing away with most of the sacraments. And one of the sacraments they did away with was confession. One of the sheets I gave you tonight gives you the sacraments. I take a look at the confession. What's the justification in the Bible for confession? Because these people have turned away from it. How are we to understand what's going on in this moment with Dimsdale and this line about he didn't have the relief of um, the momentary relief of being self-deceived? Huh? Why? How? In church, when he's in his sermon, it's, it's a false confession. He's confessing, but only he knows it's really what he's confessing. What's wrong with it? It's, it's vague. It's vague. It, yeah, it, it's mad. He said, I'm a vile man. It, what? He said, I'm a vile man. He means it. But he, he's talking about men in general. He's just making it a He said, I whose footsteps you, I mean, he, he listened, I who hold these by garments, I who do this, I who do this, I who breathe the party, I, I your pastor, and you say, utter pollution. He says, I don't see that's a guy beat. What's wrong with this confession? He's pretty specific. He doesn't say, I'm the father of Hester. <laughs> he doesn't say anything that would make it other than just a show of humility. I think the key is he, he's, he's, I mean, all, all these would be shared, I think, with other people. You know, I think he's pretty, I don't think he's vague at all. I think he's specific. But the one thing he does not confess is his sin. His, and that's major. That's major. So what's the self, so what's the meaning of this? And, it's, and a self-acknowledged shame with the, without the momentary. What's the other sin he's gained at this moment? And what's the meaning of relief of being self-deceived? Huh? Sacrilege. Go ahead. How? Why? Because he's sinning more. Uh, that's the second sin for not sin, not confessing his real sin. Yeah. Sin of sacrilege. It's hypocrisy. Yeah. It's spiritual hypocrisy because he's outwardly doing something while the real thing at issue is this, and he has no self-deception. That's the point. He can't get it because he knows. He knows, and now. Well, of that sin, he, I, I just, but he, has, he hasn't done it. Yeah. He, he, um, so he's adding hypocrisy, um, and 
he can't find, he's not self-deceived, he knows. He's very clear. So the guilt is deepening, the shame is deepening, the spiritual torment is deepening in him. We're watching a soul, the, the guilt of somebody, eat away at a person um, and somebody working on it. Um, and I'm sure he has confessed his sins directly to God multiple times without the sacrament that actually conveys his being forgiven with his penitence he has to do. It's interesting. It's almost like you know, private punishment is building. Take. Uh, crime and punishment. Just, yes, it's, right. It's, it's the guilt thing. It's either, oh. Uh, it, it's, you can't oh, right. It's, right. It, it's an interesting play between the, the. Which one was written first? This is how you I think Hawthorne's was first. And it's really, I, I just think yeah. that the, what's happening with Dimsdale is far beyond what happens with Raskolnikov and that. I mean, this is just eating him away. He's diminishing physically and. Um, it's also well. It's a it's another work, but any other comments on what's going on at this point? How important it is? Well, he's not taking responsibility for his sin. I mean, really, maybe he should have married Hester, and they could have had a home, and he should have looked after her and her. Just while we're doing it, because I, I don't know where you are. Yeah, but no, well, that's true. She was not. Yeah. Listen, just here, let, let me stop because we've got to go. In the next couple of chapters, the two of them are going to meet in the forest and say, let's run away. That's their answer. And, and I hope everybody's clear given their beliefs, there's no way they can do that. And, and the problem is, and, and there's no way, other way to, given the beliefs of this community, and Hawthorne's very critical, what do they do? Dimsdale's going to, I, this, I want to wait on this, but what are they going to do? What can happen? And there are no sacraments. Here, let me. She didn't have any means to take care of But she could have, it says that she could have, but she chose not to because she stayed because it was her too. I hope everybody sees that given the nature, I'm going to give this away. A Catholic lives in two worlds. A Catholic lives in a world with a transcendent order. He also lives in a order defined in terms of what we call natural law. There's a place for it, for natural law. We, we, we move between the two, working to put them together. That world of natural law is eliminated for a Puritan. All the laws are God's law. It's like living in Islam. They carry that severity. They, so there's no confessions. There's no sacraments. You can't move between them. They're stuck. They really are stuck. Um, we've got to go. But, but Melody, you have any comments? Because I've, I've, I've tried to cover a lot of ground here. And I, before we leave, I want to... Any thoughts or responses to any of this? Did I wake you? Is your is your volume all the way up? Can't hear you. The, the more I read this, the more I understand the 
gossip women talking about Hester's sin, but not realizing their own. Because if I had no out, if, if I had sinned and therefore was predestined to hell, right. I wouldn't want to right. recognize that right. myself either. Right. Right. So that Right. Yeah, good. I hope everybody sees that, and it reinforces the point that I've been making from the beginning. What, what Hawthorne is doing, both of them, remember, Melville and Hawthorne, crisis, 19th century. Um, Hawthorne's writing a different book. He's taking us back to the founding, and he's looking at a founding generation. But he's bringing something to that founding the founding generation could not give itself. Because what, it, I mean, even Melody's words, you know, that it created this monster that people just get locked in. If there's nothing, take away all the sacraments, just like confession, take that away. If you were in that world and you were among that group of five women in the beginning, what would you do? So Hawthorne is amazing in his ability to go back to represent this world, to show what it was, how people lived, but he's also bringing to it something they didn't have. I want to name that next week, not tonight. Um, let, I know, I'm not sure we can finish it next week. Let's try to move along. If we can't finish it, we'll finish it for sure in the next two weeks, okay? See you guys next week. Thanks.